0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Tonight I, I want to talk about the possibility of transforming suffering into happiness. Sound like a good alchemical process? (laughs) Better than lead into gold, huh? Well, whether you know it or not, this is what we're doing here. The last few days we've been including in the instructions the mindfulness of the feeling tone or the flavor of experience. And that is that in each moment there is a quality or a taste of pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And that pretty much covers all possibilities. If you're a human, if you're an animal, if you're an ant, if you're a a protozoa, protozoan, there is a positive experience that we gravitate towards, usually, an unpleasant experience that has typically a reaction or neither pleasant or unpleasant. This is the second foundation of mindfulness that the Buddha talked about in his discourse on mindfulness that this meditation process comes out of. When we're not mindful, when we are caught in our habits and patterns, when the moment is pleasant, we have a very strong tendency to grasp, to hold on to it, to keep it here, to increase it, to figure out ways as it starts to subside to keep it here or get more. This creates a lot of pain and suffering. This is the second noble truth wanting certain things, wanting reality to stay or remain or go according to your wishes is suffering when it's not happening. When the taste is unpleasant, there is a very strong tendency to push away, to avoid aversion, judgment, aggression, ill will, a contracting away from experience, anger. And that also causes some confusion and is unpleasant. When the flavor is neutral, there is a tendency to be unclear about what's happening, to get lost in other things to be bored, to get confused. This often leads to more grasping for better entertainment or pushing away this feeling of boredom and restlessness so it can easily lead to either of the other two. Those three reactions of the taste unpleasantness, unpleasant neutrality leading to grasping, aversion, or confusion, delusion. Those are the causes of suffering. The roots of suffering in the Buddhist um, psychology and understanding of the process of karma All the roots of suffering come down to those three responses of grasping or greed, aversion or hatred, or delusion, ignorance, sometimes talked about as attachment, aversion, ignorance, or greed, hatred, delusion. All of unwholesome karma and suffering, those are the roots of them. (coughs) the other possibilities of response to those same tastes or flavors. If one sees clearly when there is a pleasant experience and you simply note it and notice it as pleasant, it's possible to experience the pleasantness fully without grasping without feeling a sense of contraction and holding on to the experience that simply can be there and feel the happiness or the joy or the calm or whatever it is and realize that it's impermanent like everything and then let it go. This is a moment of non-grasping, non-greed. If the experience is unpleasant, It's possible to simply notice the unpleasantness of the situation, name it as unpleasant, realize it's unpleasant, and not have that response of contraction, of closing down, or of adding a layer of fear onto touching what's here, which will just create more suffering. And when we don't add that extra response, we can actually be with the experience as it is without it confusing us. Knowing that it's impermanent, knowing that it will pass away, and simply being here for it. And I would guess that most everybody here has had some moments on this retreat where you felt an unpleasant situation and it didn't spin you out. It was simply an unpleasant sensation or an unpleasant emotion or an unpleasant thought and you saw how quickly it it left. Or you went right into it and felt it, oh and here's fear, and it wasn't as bad as you thought it was. And When you can open up in that way, then there's a possibility not only of not adding suffering onto the experience, but of waking up and understanding our reactions. So this is the quality of non-aversion or non-hatred. And then with delusion, if the situation is neutral and you are simply here for it and know it as it is, here's a breath here is a sound without getting into a reaction to it it's possible to bring a fullness of mind a fullness of attention on anything and have a feeling of completeness that you don't have to take anything away from this moment for it to be better or add anything to have it more complete this is a moment of clarity of non-delusion of understanding and wisdom Now it happens that those three responses, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, are the exact causes karmically of wholesome results in our lives. They are sowing the seeds for wholesome results. The roots of happiness non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. So in every moment, there is this possibility. How we relate to our experience is the key. Now, this is not only true of Buddhist terminology and uh, understanding of karma. This is true in most spiritual traditions. The Buddhists and the Buddha had a way of saying things in the negative. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this. Non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Take away this, 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 and this, and what you have left is the deep understanding of reality. Um, I was from a number of years before getting into Buddhist practice into a more devotional path, bhakti path. I mentioned that uh, Maharaji, I mean Baba, was somebody who touched me deeply and who I was turned on to Dharma before I got into Vipassana. And I used to have a, a big conflict which path was mine when I started to get into Vipassana practice because it was, was quite extraordinary coming into practice. But I didn't know whether I was a, a Buddhist or a bhakti. And I struggled with this for, for a while, uh, for a good close to a year. And one day it dawned on me that Maharaji's instructions, his full instructions for uh, the Dharma to unfold, are love everyone, serve everyone, and remember God One day, it dawned on me that those are exactly the three same things as non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Non-greed, which is service or generosity. Non-hatred, which is love. Non-delusion, which is remembering, remembering the truth. It felt very good when I came to rest. Oh, I don't have to decide. It's the same thing. <clears throat> the truth just comes in lots of different packages. You know, so we call this one Buddhist and this one devotional and this one Christian and this one Jewish and this one Sufi. There are the same expressions or different expressions of the same truth in all these different paths. So I'd like to talk in a bit more detail about these three qualities of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion and see how we can consciously call them forth in our practice, understand that this is what's being created as well so that there's a, a greater purpose to what we're doing. So you don't just wonder, well, what's the big deal of feeling another breath or another step? There's something quite potent in each moment that you're mindful. So let's talk about each of these. First one, non-greed. It is the ability to let go of the pleasant. When the wanting mind strikes, it's really Strong. Have you noticed? And it gets subtler and subtler. You come here, and you might want coffee or ice cream, or well, I won't say too much to stir your mind up. But, but you think about all the things that uh, that you've left at home. And then as the retreat goes on, you get more and more into the retreat and then you kind of notice what's around here that you really would like. You know, tofu made your way or uh, a Dharma talk that you hope you haven't heard before. Or, you know. <laughs> it's still the same wanting. Or a meditation Maybe this next one is going to be the one. (sighs) Or maybe you just had one that seemed like the one and then you want it again. Oh, yeah. When you're in the middle of that wanting, that movement of mind, it doesn't matter what it is on the outside, there is this feeling of contraction. And when we see how futile it is to hold on to experience again and again and again, you start to notice, oh, I can let go. Letting go, not in the sense of dropping a hot potato, but in simply letting it be. Being here for it and allowing for it to pass on its own. The wanting mind is so tricky, so seductive. We think that if we get that thing, that object that's made it into our fantasy world, that then we'll be happy. Have you noticed? Does that give you happiness? How long does it stay for? The example that I, that I often use is, well, at the risk of stirring you up again, ice cream, right? Suppose you're at home and you're, you're just minding your own business, reading a good book, and all of a sudden the thought comes to your mind, ice cream. I could really go for some ice cream now. Okay, you close the book, you go to the refrigerator, there's nothing quite there that's done, that's it for you. And so you're, you've are you got some, some kind of purpose to the evening, going out and getting your ice cream. Okay. And if you're on your way, you're probably not gonna be in a very talkative mood. If somebody stops you and engages in conversation, you might be polite, but uh, you know, you know what you're really going for. You're on a mission, right? And then you get the ice cream cone, you go to the ice cream store, and there it is in your hand. And even when it's in your hand, it won't quite do it, because the desire is still there. If somebody came and knocked it out, you wouldn't turn around to go home, right? Until you finally put it up to your lips, take one lick, and then, ah, peace. And then what do you do for the rest of the ice cream? Look around, see who's there. you might find yourself at the last bite when you realize, oh, I'd better taste this one. It's almost gone. But what happened at the moment that you took that first lick? What happened was that the desire ended. And it feels good too, doesn't it? For how long? few moments. It feels so good, though, that you think, oh, all I need to do is create another desire and get that one gratified. And I can get that feeling of completion again. So then you go for a glass of water. That's what I need. And you drink the water, quench your thirst. And then you kind of feel bloated. What I need now is to take a walk. Then you feel tired after taking a walk. What I need now is to lie down. We don't realize that what really the peace is, is that the desire has ended. Just to point this out as another scenario, suppose on your way to the refrigerator, after that thought came to you, while you're reading your book, the phone rang and you went to it and there was somebody you haven't spoken to for a while and you enjoyed the nice conversation. And then you put the phone down and you forgot about that thought and you went back to the book. You could have a perfectly enjoyable evening not feeling frustrated because the desire came and went. So peace is not about getting that thing. It's about the desire ending, but we get tricked into thinking, "Ah, I need the next thing and the next thing." And while you're enjoying it, often you, or while you're experiencing it, I should say, you're often not even able to to enjoy it. When the the grasping and the greed takes strong hold, you're in the middle of thinking of the next thing you can have. And I mentioned this story. a number of years ago, when my son was here, he was, he was about two. Uh, at Yucca Valley, he came down. Uh, my wife and, and son come down each uh, each spring. And Adam loves strawberries, so he had this. There was this bowl of strawberries, big bowl of strawberries, and he was like a kid in a candy factory, so so to speak. There he was, this big bowl of strawberries, and he was stuffing them one after another. And I was trying to teach him to eat what he had before he went for the next bite, very naively. And there was this one moment, this one poignant moment, where he had this strawberry in his mouth and I was holding the bowl away from him for him to finish that one. And you could see the strawberries. And he said, Strawberry! Strawberry! And he couldn't taste the one in his mouth. And we do this While we're in the middle of the one that we've finally got, our mind can topple forward to the next one. It's such an incessant process. Letting go of that is very, very. It's like putting down some extra baggage where you can actually experience the strawberry or experience the moment. It doesn't mean you have to deprive yourself of it. And in fact, That quality of letting go, there's a feeling of trust that it won't be the end. It comes out of a space of sufficiency, it's an outflowing of sufficiency to be able to let go. Not only let go, but when it takes the form of generosity, there's a a deep fullness and connection that we have. We're not in a scarcity mode of, uh-oh, will there be enough for me? It feels so good when we do share, doesn't it? It feels wonderful to share. But we forget it the next time that there's something there that, that might be gone before we, we have our portion. And generosity is a natural thing that comes out of the practice you might have felt a feeling of connection or an urge to share the owls you know, or share the sunset or maybe share in, in your good feeling wanting to tell somebody or hoping that they feel good too. On one retreat a number of years ago, it was a three-month course and I was... Um, washing the pots from uh, after lunch. That was my job that was assigned, pot washing. And I kind of was feeling sorry for myself and, as I was washing the pots, scrubbing diligently so I could make it to the next sitting after lunch. And out from the staff room came uh, the manager from the staff room. Um, and he had this piece of something wrapped in some aluminum foil. And he looked at me doing my job diligently and he said, here, this is for you. So I raced through the pot washing so I could see what it was, wiped my hands, opened it up, and it was a big piece of cheesecake. Big, glazed cheesecake. And this is a point where, like, a slice of bread, an extra slice of bread, was a big deal for me. Uh, I closed the the foil, I opened it, and it was still there. (laughs) And it was big. Right? And at this point, generosity just uh, came over anyway, but it was you know, it, it seemed like a bit hoggish to, to eat the whole thing anyway. So I decided to break it into three other pieces, four pieces all together, and put three pieces in other people's bowl. You got to know whose bowl was where, and three months is not that much else to do. So. <laughs> and some people you feel a, a, an affinity for. And uh, I just watched at tea time when they came in to see what their reaction would be, and sure enough, each person's mouth dropped open. And then one of the people broke her piece off and gave it to, uh, shared it with another yogi who happened to be Howie. I ate my piece very, very mindfully, I assure you. I tasted every moment and then it was gone. But the interesting thing and the reason I share this story is that 14 years later, I still feel a connection to five other people through that cheesecake. The manager who gave it to me, the three people who Uh, I gave it to, and here's Howie sitting on the stage with me. (laughs) (laughs) So that generosity, the things that we share are just the currency of our caring and our feeling. It's just stuff. The Buddha talked about generosity. It was the first of the perfections. Jack talked about the perfections of a Buddha. It's generally considered the very first one, what he would teach lay people before, before mindfulness and, uh, and effort and, and even uh, conduct, talking about generosity because when you can let go, you start to feel that connection with everybody else. And he said, if you knew the power of generosity, you wouldn't go through a meal without sharing it with somebody else. Think of the connections that you feel when somebody gave you a gift five years ago that might be on your uh, coffee table or or something that you gave to somebody. It's very potent. And it's not giving it so that you can get something back. It just feels good to share, to let go. You can't let go in order to get the goodies, though. That doesn't work. Because then there's some kind of contraction and expectation from that. It just feels good, that spontaneous act of letting go. And this is what service is all about. This is what the movement of the heart with compassion is about that leads to action. When we see suffering and we see it with wisdom, we have to act. We all find our own ways to express our compassion and our generosity and it doesn't matter which is your way there's no right way right amount that you should do or think that you're supposed to give everything away and then you'll be a good good person because the generosity also has to take into account your own needs so it's not being a martyr or thinking that you're that you'll be better if you if you let go of things before you're ready to but that act of letting go is so powerful It relieves us of the burden and feels a connection. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, talking about letting go as a practice. He says, The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and then the Madhyamika and the Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism, instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) And the thing is, when you let go, there's always more. It's the karmic result of that non-greed, abundance. Because the universe is so creative. Do you think that's going to be the end? This is a, a passage, I'll read a few passages tonight from, from this book called The Universe is a Green Dragon. It's, it's a Christian expression of the Dharma, in, in very beautiful, poetic uh, terms. He says, uh, his, it's from the from the, um, astrono- um, astronomical or cosmic perspective, just seeing the energies and forces that we find ourselves in the human realm as part of a much larger um, process and pattern of reality in the cosmos. He says the ground of being the ground of being is generosity the ultimate source of all that all that is the support and well of being is ultimate generosity all being comes forth and shines glimmers and glistens because the root reality of the universe is generosity of being. That's why the ground of being is empty. Everything has been given over to the universe. All existence has been poured forth. All being has gushed forth because ultimate generosity retains no thing. We talk about emptiness, everything springing from this emptiness into existence. Think of how incredibly creative the world is. You can't stop it unless you try really hard for growth, for nature, for things to just develop on their own, for the mind to create. It's a continual creative process. And understanding that, there's a little bit more possibility of letting go into this openness and sharing, which is a root of happiness. The second quality, after non-greed or generosity, is non-hatred. Or, put more positively, love, loving-kindness. And this is an expression of the interconnectedness of everything. In The Green Dragon, he talks about love as a function of this cosmic energy of attraction what he talks of as allurement, that everything is drawn and attracted to everything else. It's a basic law of the universe, one basic law of the universe, very fundamental law. This attracting activity, he says, is a fundamental mystery. But the fact is that our galaxy is attracted by every other galaxy in the universe and our galaxy attracts every other galaxy. The attracting activity is a stupendous and mysterious fact of existence, primal. We awake and discover that this alluring activity is the basic reality of the macrocosmic universe. I am saying that if we're going to think about love in its cosmic dimension, we must start with the universe as a whole. We must begin with the attraction that permeates the entire macrostructure. I'm speaking precisely of the basic binding energy found everywhere in reality, galaxies to each other, the planets around the sun in our solar system, gravity, magnetism, all of these mysterious forces, even within the atom, binding it so tightly or atoms to other molecules, there is this fundamental principle of attraction and connection. And In the human realm, we call it love. We call it a feeling of affinity. Attraction. Connection. And it's very powerful. Non-hatred. This is the willingness to even open up and accept and embrace this moment when it's not pleasant. That doesn't mean that you like it. That means that there's a willingness to experience it. To see that it is somehow, beyond our comprehension perhaps, part of the whole. And Sometimes we think, oh, there's mistakes here somewhere. There's pain and there's suffering and there's cruelty and there's war and there's disease and all of this. How can some infinitely wise intelligence have planned all of this? Don't know. But there's birth and there's death. There's pleasure and there's pain. And if somehow we can learn to understand it instead of hating it. Now that means, that doesn't mean to just accept and say, okay, this is the way it is. You can take strong action without getting confused in more fear and pushing away. Somehow understanding the reality that everything is part of this cosmos. And within our own meditation, within our own practice here, we're doing it on a fundamental level. When there's a, an ache in our shoulder or a strong quality of anger or fear or confusion. When we respond with hate, And contraction, it just intensifies things. If we can respond with some kindness, then that is allowing the process of things to transform on their own. A famous line by the Buddha that probably most of you know hatred never ceases by hatred, hatred only ceases by love. This is an ancient and eternal law. non-hatred or love. There's lots of different levels that we can explore in love. It's one of the most, probably the most talked about or sought after or fantasized or um, uh, ruminated topic that there is in life. When we don't have it, we really want it. When we have it, sometimes it's really painful or frustrating. But I wonder if that's really love, when it's painful or frustrating. Love can be confused with something that looks like love. Perhaps know about the near enemies of wholesome qualities. The near enemy of loving-kindness is attachment. It looks like love. There's that quality of affinity, but there's a grasping there. There's a contraction. Whereas genuine loving kindness is a very expansive quality. There's a sense of ease and openness that's quite different from that sense of scarcity or fear that our object of love is going to go away. And often relationships are based on that attachment kind of energy, or some kind of a deal. Well, if you meet my needs, I'll meet yours, you know, and you better not blow it. That's not real love. Now that's not to say also that both don't exist in a relationship. Any relationship has all of these qualities. It's not so clear-cut, oh, this is genuine love. My relationship is all about love and that guy's is about attachment. They mix together, but if you can get in touch with that feeling that's not wanting something from the other person, that simply loves, that simply feels an appreciation and a connection, then it's very powerful to keep in touch with that energy even through the pain the confusion the quarreling and the fights where if there's a place that both of you know if it's a if it's a primary relationship that there's something underlying that's bigger than uh, than the drama that's going on it can carry you through it's a a feeling of goodwill of wishing well for the love and the loving-kindness obviously are more than in just partner relationships, although that's a wonderful vehicle for exploring love and trust and forgiveness and understanding and patience. Wonderful. And we can have that also with our friendships or people in our lives uh, that, that we have good feelings for. You've probably uh, noticed as you do the metta that you can feel, you can bring up a feeling of love for somebody you haven't seen in 15 years. And just in one moment, oh yeah. And they touch your heart. And when you're really feeling that love, it's an outflowing and you begin to soften any kind of contraction you have around what's going on here. That's why we, we do the metta. And you can practice it. It can be cultivated. There's another level of love that has to do with something beyond person-to-person, interpersonal love, that I feel is important to um, to acknowledge as we sit here and do this practice together. And that is the love that we have of the truth, the love that we have of life. That's not dependent on some person, but happens when we get deeply connected to our own being. And a number of years ago, had this experience where I understood just how important this was to me. That the Dharma was to me. I told this story, so for people who've heard it before, uh, one more time, and for people who haven't, uh, I hope it's useful. When I was first getting into the into the practice and coming from this devotional place and wondering if. If this, Buddha, if this, uh, if this Buddhist stuff, sorry, I'll switch that around. When I had gotten fully into into Dharma practice and I was going back to checking out the devotional path, because for a while the, the Buddhist seemed a little dry, and uh, I wanted to get some more juice back than what I had had from before, and. Uh, I was I was checking out to see if I should be in this, this class that Ramdas was having in New York, this was in nineteen seventy five, and he asked me about God and he said, Well, do you love God? And I said, You know, I just can't relate to God. I, I think of the image of a big stern man with a beard and a book and saying, You're gonna have a good day and you're gonna have a lousy day and it just didn't didn't relate to me. But when I hear God, I think of Dharma. Uh, the, just the perfection of, of the universe, this perfect unfolding. And he said, well, have you have you ever told the Dharma that you loved it? And I said, no. And he said, well, go ahead, say, say it. Say, I love you, Dharma. And I felt kind of dumb, but I said, it. okay, I love you, Dharma. And he repeated after me, I love you, Dharma. He said, I'll say it with you. And we said it a few times. I love you, Dharma. I love you, Dharma. And one time, it just clicked. I really felt it. And tears just started coming out of my my eyes. Yeah, I really love the Dharma. And it it was a very powerful moment for me. And I think everybody here Has that same feeling. Why else would you still be here? (laughs) You've got to really have strong incentive to do this. This is not easy stuff. Do you love the Dharma? Do you love the truth? Don't think of the Dharma as an ache in your shoulder or a wandering mind. Do you love that feeling of wholeness, of purity? of harmony of connection of honesty and integrity when you can get in touch with that that keeps you going through a lot of um, doubtful times how much you love it how much it's touched you especially on a retreat like this with, with old students loving the Dharma there's even a deeper level of love that I want to mention, at least to me, as, as we do the practice. And that is where even the idea of me loving the Dharma is removed. No me and no Dharma. No duality there. But in a spirit of deep Connection and completion where there's no separation between you and the Dharma. Between you and everyone around you. Between you and everything in this life process. And we experience it, I think, from time to time, going out into the desert or sometimes in nature and you just take a deep breath in and this feeling surges through you, Wow! Isn't it amazing to be alive? Just for a moment, there's not a separation between you and the rest of life. It's just life coming through you. That experience, which is uh, very powerfully contacted in sitting practice, I know for many people, is the deepest kind of love. Because that's not dependent on anything outside yourself. This is an experience of completion. So in the moment that we are not rejecting experience, that we're not rejecting anything, that there's nothing you need to remove from this moment to feel more alive, this is a moment of real love. It's not romantic. It's not necessarily juicy and yet it's so deep and so full that nothing quite touches it at least for me because it's not dependent on conditions it's simply coming into this moment which has been here all along it's like as many people have said coming home You know that feeling of coming home? You can't be lost when you're home, can you? So non-greed, generosity, non-hatred, love, loving-kindness. And then the last one, non-delusion. Remembering remembering the truth, seeing clearly what's here. In the moment that you're mindful, you're clear about what's happening. Now It's been talked about this sense of, of understanding, deep understanding of the, the deep truth that nothing really exists, that this is all just a play of, of our imagination which, in one level, is true. But I just want to put in a word as we talk about this non-delusion for honoring the relative as well as opening up to the absolute. Non-delusion doesn't mean that you reject everything that's right here, that I don't exist and you don't exist, and that it doesn't matter what we do within this world of illusion. It's a bit of learning to dance in both realities, where we see clearly that this is all a game, and yet it's the only game in town, so we play it to the fullest. And there are rules of being kind, or being clear, that lead to happiness, or being nasty, or being deceitful, or being uh, angry that lead to suffering. And So it's a bit of learning in this wise attitude to both see the relative and honor it, and see the deeper, the absolute, that's not dependent on conditions. And honor that. Because when you have that perspective, it informs everything that you do in this play of the relative. You don't have to take it quite so seriously. Non-delusion. Delusion means not seeing clearly what's going on. So you find yourself lost in a thought or in a daydream or in a whole story or in a battle with your body. Or there can be a dullness and a spaced out quality where you just are walking around in a fog. You probably know what that's like. And there's this feeling of being identified with your experience. This is mine. This is my pain. This is my confusion. This is my wandering mind and I'm really rotten for having it. And if I could only figure out how to get rid of it, you know, I created it, but I can't not create it, and it's my fault. Or, this is my wonderful thought that just popped through the screen. I hope people realize how wonderful a person I am for having that thought. And you identify with your meditation, hey, it's really going well now. I must be a great yogi. This is called identification or wrong view, what Carol spoke about last night. When you see clearly, you see that these phenomena of sensations and thoughts and feelings are just happening on their own. You don't have control over the concentration staying or the mindfulness or the energy. You don't have control over the sweeping through of aversion or contraction or um, judgment or sadness. Just coming through on their own. If you had any control over them, then you'd just say, oh, go away. But there they are coming on their own. We take them to be ours. And this creates a lot of problems on one retreat again another long course three month retreat is, came home to me really clearly how I don't own nor can take responsibility for my experience I had been doing the practice and it was really uh, uh, going well so to speak I was pretty clear and pretty mindful and pretty concentrated for this this Part of the, this phase of the retreat, and I was just—I was sitting for long time, hours, hour after hour, and my body wasn't hurting. It was really far out. If you can imagine it. I mean, it was just the way it was. And I was in this one sitting in the hall, and I was sitting with my eyes open, uh, and I had been sitting for a number of hours when this yogi comes in, who was a really great yogi, or just very sincere. Somebody who I, I had a lot of respect for and, and, and took inspiration from, she came in and sat down and, and in about 10 minutes had this classic case of the nods just kind of going like that, you know, all, all the way down and all the way up, and all the way down, all the way up. And I thought, wow, oh, that's really interesting. You know, here I am just kind of cruising along and she's you know just gone after a few moments. Now it would have been typical to say, gee, I'm really pretty good yogi. Too bad she doesn't have her act together. But the thought came to me how many hours, how many, many hours I was in that exact same rhythm of going all the way down and all the way up. I knew it so well. And that in another sitting or two or the next day, we could switch our roles. And in a moment, the whole room turned into this mass of energies where this one was... Pretty energetic and concentrated. This one, this energy, here was sleepiness, here was restlessness, here was calm, here was uh, confusion, and it could be interchangeable parts. And for me to take credit for the fact that I happened to be in a clear space seemed so absurd. And it is absurd. If you can have a good sitting every time you come into the hall, let me know about it. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. But we take our experience to be who we are and it becomes something that we either wear like a badge for a few moments and then try to recapture or beat ourselves up when it's not going the way we want because it's our fault. This is delusion. This is identifying with your experience. Non-delusion is seeing clearly that you don't have control over your experience. You are experience happening through you. You are the process of life happening through you. You are not a thing, not some fixed entity You are not a noun. You are a verb. You are a process. That somehow we take to be me and separate ourselves out when we don't see through that. This is non-delusion. In this moment we can see with one moment of clarity when we don't own our experience, how it's just happening. And we don't have to take blame, we don't have to take credit, we simply can be here for it and honor it and honor life. This is again from The Universe is a Green Dragon. We are the self reflection of the universe we allow the universe to know and feel itself. So the universe is aware of itself through self-reflexive mind, which unfurls in the human. We were brought forth so that these experiences of beauty could enter awareness. The primeval fireball and the Big Bang, when it all started, Existed for 20 billion years without self awareness. The creative work of the supernovas existed for billions of years without self reflexive awareness. That star could not by itself become aware of its own beauty or sacrifice, but the star can, through us, reflect back on itself. In a sense, You are the star. Look at your hand. Do you claim it as your own? Every element was forged in temperatures a million times hotter than molten rock, each atom fashioned in the blazing heat of the star. Your eyes, your brain, your bones, all of you is composed of the star's creations. You are that star, brought into a form of life that enables life Reflect on itself. So you are a star's way of knowing itself, so to speak. You're not separate from this process. What an absurd or sad misperception when we take ourselves out of the whole process. Non-delusion sees clearly what's happening right now in this moment, sees here is a moment of sensation, pleasant or unpleasant, here is a moment of thinking, here is a moment of mood or emotion, and it just sees it for what it is. Non-delusion is really the source of the other two, non-greed and non-hatred. Because when you see clearly, then there's no need to grasp. There's no need to push away. In the moment of mindfulness, you are simply here for your experience. And not reacting to it. And this is how, getting back to the beginning, we can transform suffering into happiness. With each moment that we're mindful, we're doing it. When we meet this moment with clarity, that is non-delusion, that is remembering the truth. When we're not identified with it, when we meet this moment with mindfulness, and we're not holding on to the pleasant, this is a moment of letting go, of non-greed, or of generosity of trust. When we meet the moment and it is unpleasant and we can simply be mindful of it, this is a moment of non-hatred, non-aversion, of openness to our situation, of love, of accepting and including this moment as being part of our experience. So right here, in every single moment, it's like that image that Jack mentioned the other night of the Buddha putting his hand up and... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.